Jesus turned everything upside down. Jesus was the purveyor of a kingdom. He introduced and inaugurated something that was completely different. And on that first Palm Sunday, they were embracing this humble leader who came in on a donkey and he spoke to them and he loved them and he rode in across the palm leaves and the clothing that was laid in front of him. But by Friday, they'd had a disorienting dilemma. And that disorienting dilemma was resolved with nails driven through the hands of our Savior that God took and twisted once again and led it from something that was meant to eliminate to something that was restorative. We remember all those who stepped out of the way. They threw down their coats and palm branches to say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord God's own Son. As we raise our voices and lift high the cross, we think of this man who knew suffering and loss, who on a donkey did ride through the town, who raised up the people and put power down. We think on those branches today in this place, those palms that were waved that brought joy to each face. We celebrate Jesus, the one who did come, so that all would know love and not just some. This Jesus did come to lift up the lowly and remind us, remind all of us that each person is holy. So raise up your hands and sing out with a shout as the story unfolds. Love is what it's about. You see, Palm Sunday is a reminder that we can sometimes get locked into an ideal and grip that ideal and that idea so strongly that we end up crucifying the very thing that Jesus wants to show us. The Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, the series that we have kind of stumbled into and we keep stumbling through, is honestly about character. And we're going we're gonna to go over the first four Beatitudes today. And it's about our character upward, our relationship with God. And there's this image I felt just so clearly describes it. Can you flip to the next screen? I don't have signal. Can you relate to this? This is my physical and my spiritual life sometimes. I have the suit. I'm ready to go. I want to worship God. I'm on fire for Jesus and I can barely get myself off the ground. We need to be physically fit, I think. But Jesus is telling us through the Beatitudes that that blessing that comes to us, it's not what we expect. Physical fitness doesn't come in the way that we think it's going to come. It comes by being blessed. Because blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You can go to the slides. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can go to the next slide. What kind of poverty are we talking about? You see, I've walked slum villages. I've been in favelas. I've seen the poor where they dwell. I've drunk tea with them. I've eaten their food. I've been with them in their communities. And I can tell you right now, they know, they know that they are in need. They don't have any sense of arrogance. They don't have any sense of privilege. They don't have any sense of some right. They know of their utter bankruptcy. So what Jesus is talking about is somehow there's this connection where the poor find it easier to remain faithful. Because the poor know that they're deeply in need. See, rich people tend to be compromised by the surrounding culture. And so Jesus is making this connection between how the poor respond and how the rich respond to the call of God. Where wealth and worldliness tend to connect to one another and poverty and godliness do as well. It doesn't mean that all poor people are godly and it certainly doesn't mean that if you're wealthy, you're not saved. But Jesus is saying that we have an opportunity to look closely at our own lives, to acknowledge our own spiritual bankruptcy before God. It's like that man lying on the ground. We barely push ourselves up. That's the gift we receive from Jesus to basically say, that's where I am, Lord. I am spiritually bankrupt You see, Jesus is taking this and turning it completely upside down where it's not the rich. It's the feeble, not the mighty. It's the humble, not the proud. It's not the Pharisees or the zealots, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Those who know they have nothing are the ones who are given the kingdom. I want to be more like that guy lying on the ground. I want to be one who's so painfully aware of my own poverty. Because it's easy to slip into somewhat of a confidence, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time, if you happen to carry the title of pastor, you can fail to understand that I need to continually acknowledge my own spiritual brokenness. That I am prone to make mistakes. I often say to people, I'm about 20 minutes from paganism. It'll only take one thing to completely derail me. And so there's a call here. That Jesus is saying, let's remain faithful in the midst of oppression. 
And I think it goes farther than this. And this is why I invited Phyllis to speak last week. I think there's a call by Jesus for us to have solidarity with those who are oppressed. Jesus is calling us to love God enough to trust him deeply. To love ourselves rightly. Which is not about saying we should have pride, but it also is conversely not about beating myself up. I am deeply loved by Jesus, made in the image of God, and loved enough that he rode that donkey straight to a Roman cross so that we could be in relationship with him. See, this love of Jesus is the love that's enough to form alliances of hope, compassion, and justice. And I think it's a profound invitation. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's find that slide and throw it up. Happy are the unhappy is what Jesus is saying. And I think this comes from the first beatitude. And we start to see some steps happening here. That when I acknowledge my own spiritual poverty, I'm going to start to mourn. And there's a sorrow that comes out of repentance. See, it's one thing to be spiritually poor. It's something entirely different to acknowledge it. And to mourn over it. You see, the perpetual Christian grin is not actually biblical. So when we come to church and we ask each other, how are you doing? And we always smile and say, we're doing awesome. That's not biblical. Unless, of course, we're doing awesome. But we really should be a community, I think. And I'm not really one to say we should do things from the pulpit. But this one I'll say, I'll go a little farther. And say, I think we can be safe enough with one another if we learn trust to be honest about where we're at. So that we can actually become a community that embraces the sorrow. So we can have Christian tears for ourselves and for others. Where this becomes a safe place to weep at the cross on a Sunday morning. You see, sorrow is a reality that comes when we respond to Jesus. Jesus wept over the sins of others. And incidentally, he only really got angry with loveless religion. It's easy to take my eyes off my own brokenness. Me, Pastor Duane. I can sometimes lose sight of the areas that I need your help. And I don't always get it right. I need grace, but it's not going to be by making less of sin. And so I need to be vigilant in my own life. I think this is about an inward-looking thing. We can sometimes walk around and be so careful about getting that speck out of our brother and sister's eye and that big giant log is sticking out of ours. I need to pull the log out of my eye. We also grieve at the experience of tragedy, injustice, and death that so permeates our world. And the more we open ourselves up to the way of Jesus, the more we find ourselves mourning for what's going on around us. And so we find in the midst of our grief the ability to experience faithfulness, suffering, and hope. 
And I think this is what's important and what Jesus is telling us. And I think there's a natural response to that. When I begin to become aware of my own brokenness, when I begin to become aware of how much I need Jesus, and let me be very clear here, I, Dwayne Guthrie, is desperately in need of Jesus every day. And so it leads to a humility. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You can go to that slide if we can find it. There we are. And the Greek word here is praus. It means gentle, humble, considerate, and courteous. It's really about exercising self-control. It's when things are falling apart at the tech booth, not losing your head. Not so easily done. It's a gentle attitude toward others that comes out of a right attitude about ourselves. It frames the way we interact with one another. But here's the rub, and I think we struggle with this in church. It's fairly easy to be honest about myself, especially in the privacy of my prayer closet. But it's much harder to allow others to be clear and to speak out loud what they think about us. You see, what happens is when you say, Dwayne, you did something wrong, instinct kinks in and I become defensive and my posture is immediately aggressive. And it's no longer soft. You see, I can say I'm a miserable sinner, but if you say it, Dwayne, you're a miserable sinner, look out. John Stott, the great missiologist and theologian, wrote it this way, when you tell me I'm broken, I want to punch you in the nose. So if John Stott has that relationship with others, I feel pretty safe. But you see, meekness comes from a true view of who we are. Jesus says, these people are the ones that will inherit the earth. But we expect the opposite. You see, our world rewards the bold and the brash. The godless boast. And that's our experience. And so this attitude and engagement stands against this kind of world that permeates with anger, violence, and brutality. It even stands against acquisitiveness. The idolatry that comes from consumerism as we work hard to mask our pain. I'm going to apologize now. If you take the time to look at the sermon questions, they're brutal this week. I really, really hope you do. But they're tough. Because they're asking really tough questions. Because I think if you're anything like me, there's something going on where you're just fighting that and it eases the pain. It could be food. It could be television. Could be some addiction, I don't know. But you know, we're all prone to that. And so this meekness is really about saying, in the midst of the pain, I'm actually going to allow Christ to come in because I need him. I'm not going to bury myself under something that's masking that pain. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And so there's the question, what do we pursue? What is it that we are after? 
And righteousness in the biblical sense has three aspects. Legal, moral, and social. Legal righteousness is about justification, which is our right relationship with God. And we're celebrating that this week. The act of Christ on our behalf, taking on all of our brokenness and sin, and nailing it to a Roman cross, taking it to hell, and leaving it there. But I don't know about you, but I so easily wander back to hell, pick it up, and take it back with me. I can't let it go. And so I keep making these same errors. But if we are children of God through Christ, joint heirs with Him, we are legally justified before God and therefore righteous and therefore holy. But in Jesus, it goes a little bit further because, see, Jesus is looking at the Torah. He's looking at the Old Testament. We'll talk a little about this, more about this in a second. Moral righteousness is about our character and conduct in the ways we live our life so that it is pleasing to God. There is a subculture within the Western church that says because of the grace of salvation, that it is not by works, that what we do doesn't matter. And I'm here to tell you that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying you're justified because of me, but there's still a call for you to live that righteous life. If you love God, you will work to please Him through what you do. And I think this does come out of humility. And there's a social righteousness. And it's concerned with human liberation and oppression. Surprise, surprise, Pastor Dwayne is talking about justice, righteousness, liberation, and human oppression. But Jesus is too. You see, when Jesus healed people, he was breaking the strongholds and freeing people so they could flourish. And then he'd quietly say, go sin no more. He utterly changed their life physically and had very little to say spiritually. Other than that amazing statement, go and sin no more. Because Jesus is saying, this is the kingdom. This is a kingdom that's not about pursuing for self. It's about giving out for others. It's a kingdom that says God's justice matters and I want you to participate it day in and day out in the little places and the big ones. Whether you have influence over many or few, there's an opportunity for us in our homes, in our workplaces, throughout our society to seek rights and justice and integrity in this world. And if you don't think this is biblical, I challenge you to go read the prophets from start to finish. Because you're not going to come away from that thinking that we're not called into ministry and mission of justice and mercy. Because this is what's pleasing to God. This is right worship. And these are the perpetual characteristics of the disciples of Jesus. Poverty of spirit, meekness, mourning, and hunger for what God wants. So we begin with the poverty of spirit, acknowledging our own total bankruptcy before God. We mourn over the cause of our own sin and the reign of sin and death in the world. We become increasingly meek and gentle toward others in a way that allows our spiritual poverty to be reconditioned into something beautiful. 
to shape our behavior towards others and towards God. So that we can choose like Matthias did today, to stand up front and share a testimony even though it was probably the last thing he wanted to do today. And God will credit that to you as righteousness. Because it's an act of deep faith. And it's a commitment to God and to community that's to be emulated. So well done, brother. And we become increasingly meek and gentle. And then we call, are called to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because what is the use of confessing our sin and lamenting our brokenness if it makes zero difference to the way we act? You see, those in hunger and thirst for righteousness will do so through God's will. It's checking our own passions in order to do what God wants us to do, to further God's justice and to express our longing for Him and His kingdom to be established here and now, first and foremost, in my life, in your life, in our church, and then in our city. In some ways, this is really about appetite suppression. Food, sensuality, passions, lusts. Jesus is saying, bring them all under me. Let me be the Lord of them. It's finding our satisfaction from communion with God and communion with our brothers and sisters. It is about righteousness. It's about right standing before God. That is deeply connected to a covenant faithfulness. Now, I don't mean to get terribly technical here, but the truth is our view of righteousness has been shaped primarily by Paul. And so Paul talks about this word called justification, which is our right standing before God. But it's really important here to remember that Jesus came before Paul. Jesus wasn't reading Paul's letters and going, hey, this is brilliant. I should talk about this. Jesus is saying, look to Moses. He's talking about a Torah commitment. It's justice, peace, faithfulness, worship, holiness, and love. The whole scope of Scripture. His Scripture, the Old Testament. And he goes deeper in this, Matthew 22. He says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Second is equally important. If you remember nothing else I say today, remember that word equal. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Matthew 7, he says, Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. Matthew 5 he says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses 
or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's will will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus goes on to teach about anger, turns it upside down. Adultery turns it upside down. Vows, revenge, love for our enemy, everything about the kingdom, he flips on its head. And he's demonstrating the high expectation that he has for those who call him Lord. And this is hard. It's like I'm in my tracksuit with my fancy arrows and I'm ready to go looking like a superhero and I can barely get myself up. Righteousness refers to kingdom behaviors. These are the people who will be filled. The poor, those who mourn, those who are meek, and those who hunger. And I want you to take a moment and imagine a community that functioned like this. This is Jesus' vision for the church. It's his vision for our church. But people let us down. The world is becoming increasingly hostile both to each other and to Christ. It isn't getting easier to follow Jesus. Mission is more complicated and more complex than ever. We have examples of this being lived out every single day all over the world. Believers stepping up and standing out in large and small ways. And every time this happens... They're pushing against the darkness and demonstrating the deep love of Jesus to a world that desperately needs his love. Imagine what that community would be like. We're not always going to agree. I'm going to do things as your pastor that you're not going to like. I'm going to do things as your pastor that I'm not going to like. We're going to disappoint one another all the time. But this relationship upward to God is a way of taking our focus off of what's happening around us, bringing it onto ourself, turning upward and saying, God, show me just how much I need you. And this week, as we enter into the celebration of Easter, and we remember the death of Christ on the cross, may we be deeply aware of our own brokenness and poverty. May that draw us into a deep sense of humbleness. May that turn into a pursuit of righteousness and a love for one another. As I said, I love being part of this church. I see this every single day. So I don't stand up here chastising you. I stand up here wearing that fancy uniform and pom-poms, jumping up and down, cheering you on, and if that's not an image, nothing is. I'm your cheerleader because I see it happening every day, and I'm so proud of you. This is our second Palm Sunday where our traditions have been broken. It's our second Palm Sunday where most of us are on the other side of that camera. 
God is good and he will be faithful. And so as we enter this holy week, as we worship together on Friday, as we scavenge the city on Saturday, and as we celebrate his resurrection a week today in this place or online, pray you would just feel a sense of God's presence in your life. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the gift of your son. And Lord, sometimes it feels like we're like those who were waving the palm branches and laying down our clothing and expecting you to ride in and change everything. And on Friday, we sit there and we wonder if anything's changed at all. And Lord, in this second Palm Sunday of the pandemic, I can imagine there are some who are just done. Lord, I pray that your grace would fall like rain. Lord, we love you. We need you. And we pray, Father, your son's amazing work on the cross would not escape anyone who's listening. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.